Well, good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Church, Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are consider- continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Jesus has upset the Pharisees by his associating and feasting with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And now he disrupts the religiosity, if you will, uh, of the people by his failure to conform to the practices that were regularly a part of uh, their life in Israel, which included fasting. Uh, So we're going to be looking at this issue of fasting in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. You can find it in your bulletin, or you can turn with me in your Bibles. Hear God's word. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, uh, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests feast or fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, or the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just ask once again that you would help us understand your word. Give us uh, uh, joy in the Lord Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. There are uh, some things that are really inappropriate that you just don't ever do. Okay, I'm just going to say there are things that you just don't do. And one of those is you don't go to a funeral dressed for a party, and you don't go to a party dressed for a funeral. In fact, if you were to dress and act as though you were at a funeral while at a wedding, you would be communicating something very clearly, right? Uh, Now, uh, you would upset the couple, of course, who's getting married. And you might even argue, well, there are some maybe grounds for such an action, Doubtful, but maybe you might symbolically do it for some reason. Doubtful. More likely, if you did it, you're just a scorned lover who never got over the fact that you are not the one at the altar. So maybe in protest, you go to the wedding in mourning clothes, refusing to eat or drink or to celebrate. Um, In case you aren't aware, this is a major faux pas. So for anybody who's planning to go to a wedding, do not do this. Because if you do, you'll hear about it. Your friends and family will probably ask you to go change, leave, or change your attitude. Uh, You just don't do it. Mourning and fasting are not something you do at a wedding. Jesus points this obvious truth out to us in the text with this rhetorical question. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the rhetorical answer that nobody needed to say out loud was, of course not. 
That's ridiculous. It's completely inappropriate. And this this question that Jesus rhetorically asked was in response to a question posed to him by the people who were observing the fasting of John's disciples and the fasting of the Pharisees. And they wanted to know why it was that Jesus and his disciples didn't fast. In fact, we learned from the very previous passage that not only did they not fast, but Jesus partied, he partied with sinners and tax collectors, which was also unfathomable. So what's going on? Why such a shift in religious practice? If it was normal for this fasting, why this shift? What was the purpose of the fasting? And why is Jesus making a point not to fast? At least at this point in the narrative, because we know from earlier in the Gospels that he certainly did fast. Now, there are some things to unpack in the text, but the short answer is that the bridegroom has come and he's among them. So you don't fast. It's the short answer. Um, And Jesus is calling his followers to rejoice in his coming. Now, there are some things here that we're going to have to wrestle with uh, and sort of figure out how it applies to us in our situation because it's not quite the same. Jesus was physically present. He had come to earth. He was living with his disciples. And there's a difference. Now he is in glory at the right hand of the Father. He's no longer with us in this place, physically present. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I think we too are called to rejoice. We ought to celebrate and rejoice at the coming of the bridegroom. And it's appropriate for us to feast in anticipation of the bridegroom's return as we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So our call is to rejoice and to feast for the bridegroom has come and is coming again. Look at this in three, three ways. First, fasting to feasting, the coming of the bridegroom. Second, feasting to fasting, the bridegroom being taken away. And then finally, fasting to feasting, rejoicing that he's coming again. So that's where we're headed. So first, fasting to feasting, the coming of the bridegroom. There are quite a few questions that are raised uh, with regard to the topic of fasting. Um, Maybe this is a common practice for you and you've thought a lot about it. Um, And and I want to be clear here that the text that we're looking at is not instructions on fasting. The, The text here is ultimately it's about Jesus, the bridegroom. He's telling us something about himself, about his person and his purpose. Nevertheless, I think it's, I think it's help, helpful for us to address some questions regarding fasting at the outset so that we might have a better understanding of what's going on, what Jesus' purposes here are. And like I said, some of you may be more familiar or less familiar with fasting. It may be a practice that you do regularly. It may not be. But what does it mean to fast? Um, that's maybe a really basic question. Um, we fast for all sorts of things. If you get blood work done, sometimes you've got to fast. Um, it's not the kind of fasting we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual fasting, fasting with a spiritual purpose. Though there are some relationships 
Fasting literally is not refraining from eating and drinking for an extended period of time. It's skipping a regular meal. Um, now, we can refrain from all sorts of things for a period of time. And we might use that language of fasting, say we fast from technology or something to that effect. But, but fasting, as it's described in Scripture, revolves around food and drink. Second, what, what is the meaning or purpose of fasting? What's it about? Why, why do it? Well, in Scripture, there are different types of fasting that we see that have different purposes. Um, there is only one place where it's explicitly commanded, at this time you must fast. And in fact, um, it is in the Old Testament. It's during the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And the language in Leviticus actually isn't fasting, though it is includes fasting, um, and other parts of Scripture um, comport with this idea that the term that is used in Leviticus is that the people were to afflict themselves. Afflict themselves. It's a bigger idea than just fasting, but it includes fasting. They were to inflict themselves. The Day of Atonement, of course, was the highest holy day of the year. It was a day when the people's sins were ceremonially atoned for through the sacrificial lamb. It was pointing to the work of Christ ultimately on the cross. But this was a day of weeping and mourning over sin. It was afflicting oneself because it was a day when we recognized as a people the need for that atoning work of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb. So this particular fast is in the context of confession of sin and repentance. Fasting with regards to confessing and repenting of sin is is a common reason for fasting in Scripture. But we see another group of people who fast. They were not Israelites. They were Ninevites. Go back to the book of Jonah. Uh, The city of Nineveh fasted. Why? Over remorse for their sin. They were under judgment from God. They were seeking the mercy of God, and so they fasted. What, what is it when you stop eating eating and drinking and or drinking? Um, what is it that's happening? Well, what is food, right? I've got to think about that for a minute. Food is life. When we deprive ourselves of it, we're indeed afflicting ourselves by not giving ourselves what we need for daily life. It's the thing that sustains us. But in fasting, we're entrusting ourselves to the one who is the giver of life. We're saying, Lord, preserve me. And this is, this is what I think David is doing when he fasted while the child of he and Bathsheba was afflicted and dying. So what does David do? He gets on his knees and he prays and he fasts while his son is dying. He casts himself and he casts this child at the mercy of God. It seems as though the disciples of John the Baptist here in our text was in the connection to this idea of repentance. Remember, what was John the Baptist's cry? It was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was a time of mourning and fasting and preparing for the kingdom of God to come. And in that, the judgment of God. So the disciples of John, presumably, were fasting in this sense. But they were also preparing. And there's other 
ideas that go along with fasting. Seeking God and seeking His wisdom. It's a a return to God, a focusing in on God, to, to take away things that are a greater appetite, that we might have that appetite for the Lord. These are also common themes of fasting in Scripture. Remember, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He went off into the wilderness. It wasn't because he sinned. He was preparing for ministry. He was, he was spending time with his heavenly Father in the wilderness. Moses and Elijah also did a 40-day fast. They fasted food and water for 40 days. This is a, a miraculous event, right? You can't live for 40 days without water, but they were preserved, they were prepared. But it was a time where for Moses was receiving, it was after uh, the 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 Lord had renewed the covenant after the, the golden calf narrative. And there was a restoration. What was that? That Moses went and fasted and communed with the Lord. And that renewal of the covenant. But even in the book of Acts, we see fasting. The church in Antioch fasted and sought the Lord under God's direction. After they fasted and prayed, the Lord called them to send Saul and Barnabas out on a missionary journey. There are other examples of fasts in Scripture which we don't have time to explore. But in summary, fasting has a varied use in Scripture. It's done in grief and sorrow, just grieving over the loss of something. It's done in repentance of sin and grief over sin. It's done to seek the Lord's wisdom and direction and to focus our attention and our heart on the Lord and to commune with Him. It's done corporately and it's done individually. Of course, Jesus warns against doing it for vainglory and in public as the Pharisees do. Nevertheless, it was a regular part of the spiritual life of the people of God. It's important to note that the Pharisees added prescriptions to it. They fasted twice a week. They added other days that called all of Israel to fast. Scripture only mandated that one corporate fast in the Old Testament. The rest were voluntary. But it was part and parcel to this spiritual life and well-being of God's people. All in all, fasting is a sober and serious matter. It is often associated with grief and or sin. And it's not something you do at a wedding. Right? That's a time to eat all and that brings us back to the text the people are confused John the Baptist has been preaching about the coming of the kingdom he'd been preaching uh, or he had been preparing the people of God um, uh, for the righteous judgment that would be revealed the Pharisees on the other hand maybe a little bit of a twist they regularly fasted as a means Maybe, as Scripture later indicates in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about fasting, the Pharisees regularly fasted as a means to gain approval from God and people. But Jesus and his disciples seem unconcerned with these things. And it wasn't as if they didn't believe in fasting. I already mentioned Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights. Jesus fasted. But it didn't have any place in the moment. Why? Because the bridegroom 
had come. The Lord of glory had come to earth to prepare for himself a bride, a people. The announcement of his birth was enough to bring the heavenly hosts to earth. Remember this? We looked at it a few weeks back. Uh, And they came to earth. The, The heavens opened up and the angels sang glory to God in the highest. And now here he was, a grown man in their midst, healing the sick, casting out demons, causing the lame to walk, forgiving outcasts and sinners like Levi. This was the coming of the bridegroom. It was a time to celebrate and rejoice and feast. Sorrow and longing had been turned to joy and fulfillment of all that had been promised long ago. Now, it's a hard thing for people to get their minds around right now. For the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, this is a hard thing to get their mind around. You see, the pattern of fasting and prayer and preparation and longing and sorrow and looking forward uh, to the coming of the Messiah, etc., had been so long ingrained. It had been so much a part of their life. I mean, the, the Pharisees had even turned it into a tool to manipulate God. If we could contort ourselves just so and show how much we're willing to suffer, then maybe God will come down and maybe the people will respect us and approve of us. They'd been so ingrained into their life that it was hard for them to get their mind around. Not fasting. Taking time to celebrate. Now, you and I, we uh, have not grown up under the rigors of the Old Testament world with all its shadows and types, with all its looking forward and preparation. But it may be the case that sometimes we forget that the bridegroom has come. What do I mean by that? Sometimes maybe our practice of religion becomes one of... Maybe like the Pharisees trying to manipulate God. If I just beat myself hard enough, if I just discipline my body enough, if I just fast long enough, God will be pleased with me. So we mourn and we grieve over our sin with gritted teeth and little hope. We do our duty. Sometimes, right? Sometimes our religion, our faith acts out this way. Maybe sometimes we lose the joy of our salvation. And maybe, sometimes, Reformed Christians are particularly forgetful that the bridegroom has come. I'm just saying sometimes. Jesus makes two analogies to remind us that things are different. Things are not what they were. He uses two analogies. One is that of a shrunken cloth. He says, you don't, you, or, or a new cloth. You don't take uh, a cloth that hasn't been shrunk and put it on an old garment and then throw it in the wash. Why? Because that, that cloth will shrink and it'll tear apart the cloth beneath it. Um, I personally struggle with, with having long arms. Maybe none of you have this problem. But um, I, I struggle with long arms because there is not a long sleeve T-shirt that does not get shrunk on me. Now, it doesn't tear apart, but there's nothing more frustrating. You get this nice new 
new uh, thing, you throw it in the laundry, and then it shrinks back, and your arms are always... Maybe I'm, it's just me. Jesus is saying, you don't take what is new and place it on what is old, because if you do that with cloth, it'll shrink and it'll tear apart. He uses another illustration, and I'll explain what they mean in just a second, but I want to use both illustrations together. He says, another thing you don't do is you don't take a wineskin. Now, they would have had wineskins made out of goat or whatever skin, and they would, they would uh, pour the new wine into the supple leather, and that wine would over time ferment, and then it would become old wine, and that wineskin, then you'd pour out the wine, and then you'd drink the wine, and you'd celebrate because that's what wine is for, and you would have that enjoyment, and then you put the new wine into the old wineskin. Why? Because of the fermentation process. If you put the new wine into the old wineskin, what happens? That, that skin busts apart. You lose all your good new wine and you lose the wineskin. So what's the point of all of this? Jesus is suggesting. No, he's not suggesting. He's saying he isn't suggesting that the newness is something completely other. That these things are unrelated. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that what has come, Jesus himself, the bridegroom, is the fulfillment of what has been promised long ago. Things are changing. Things are new. The, 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 the day has arrived. You don't go backwards in time and try to fit that new thing into the old patterns. You now take what is new and rejoice. Rejoice in the coming of the bridegroom. It's not a time for preparation and fasting, but it's a time for proclamation and rejoicing. Friends, Jesus has already come. The gloom of the veil has been torn away. The glory of the Lord has been revealed. And so Paul exhorts in Philippians, he says what? Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Sometimes, sometimes, I think we forget to rejoice that the bridegroom has come. Well, this having said this, I want to move back briefly from feasting to fasting. So I've just said all this about rejoicing because the bridegroom has come. But now we're going to step back and go back towards fasting here for a moment. Jesus' main point is that the bridegroom is present and it's a time for celebration. But in the midst of these words, he says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. There's a day coming when they'll be fasting. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that he makes a veiled reference to the cross. His mission is still hidden from view, but he hints of it here. Uh, He hints of it here. Later in the Gospel of Mark, at what might be described as the pinnacle of, of the bridegroom celebration. Right? If we're thinking about the cross being going back to fasting the pinnacle of the bridegroom celebration, you could say is right about the chapter 8 of Mark. Because in this chapter, in chapter 8 of Mark, uh, we, we, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. But Peter says, or he asks Peter, what do, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And then Just one little chapter forward in the beginning of chapter 9, we have this amazing transfiguration where Peter and John and and, and Jesus and uh, 
James, they all go up to the, to the mountaintop and there Jesus is transfigured. His glory is revealed. Peter's ready to set up tents. But in between, in between those points, after Jesus is declared to be the Messiah by Peter, Jesus says to his disciples that he must suffer and die at the hands of religious leaders. This is too much. This is too much for Peter. What does he do? He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. What are you saying? You have to, you have to die. Don't say that. This is our moment of glory. This is, our, this is our shining time. The kingdom has come. The bridegroom has come. It's a time to rejoice. It's not a time to talk about sin and death. Too much for Peter. He wanted to live on the mountain. But the bridegroom would be taken away. The bridegroom would be taken and interrogated, beaten, mocked, stripped, and crucified. If ever there was a day of fasting and prayer, it was that day. I don't think Mary and Martha were eating on that day. I think Peter and the rest of the disciples were eating on that day. But in the irony of God, that too is a day of rejoicing. Scripture says of that day, who for the joy set before him, Jesus had joy. But it does go on. Hebrews goes on and says, He endured the cross, despising the shame. But it was for the joy that was set before Him. Because of the ignominy of the cross and its shame, the power of sin and death were defeated. You see, the preparation period, the fasting period of the whole Old Testament, all the way through the last prophet, John, it was all pointing to the bridegroom's mission to prepare a bride for himself, to, to make that bride a raiment. Something that could be, they could be clothed in so that that bride would be beautifully presented. I've uh, walked through not just a few weddings, um, uh, I, I enjoy doing weddings. It's a, it's a great joy of mine. Um, um, and when the bride and bridegroom are decked out, you all know, you've been to weddings, you know what a, what a stupendous event it is. When that bride comes down the aisle and the, the, the groom's eyes are just as large as saucers and he's just beaming from, you know, ear to ear. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But the preparation... The longing, the expectation, the frustration, the anxiety, the tears, the fears. Yes, even fasting, though I'm not sure it's spiritual fasting, but there's fasting that goes on. All in a lead up is for that moment. The bridegroom comes. The last gasping preparation of his bride so that she might be fit for him, was to die for her, was to lay his life down. 
It was a day of sadness. It was a day of fasting for the disciples. But oh, what a day. What a glorious day. Friends, there is no amount of fasting and praying and religious observance and preparation that fits us for heaven. But the bridegroom coming and dying fits you for heaven. And so we go from fasting to feasting once more. This is my final point conclusion. Fasting to feasting. Rejoice for he is coming again. We live in a, a strange period. I don't know if that's a fair way to put it. Um, theologians like to call it the already not yet eschatology, maybe like all weird words like that. But the idea is pretty simple. On the one hand, the bridegroom has come and we can rejoice in his coming and his dying and his rising again and his sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, 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 and that the fact that he's coming again uh, gives us great hope and joy. And we have the advantage over our Old Testament brothers and sisters of being on this side of the cross and this side of the tomb. And so we can rejoice with the disciples that Jesus came. And yet on the other hand, we live in a time of preparation, of fasting and of waiting and of looking forward. We can still fast and pray as we grieve. We can still fast and pray as we grieve over sin. As we turn in repentance and faith, we can fast and pray as we seek wisdom of God and try to seek and grow in our knowledge and love and faithfulness to God. We can fast and pray as we pursue the lost and we serve the poor. We can fast and pray as we look forward to the hope of the gospel. So there's still fasting and praying that we do. Yet, week in and week out, we come to the table of the Lord and we feast. We eat because the bridegroom gave himself for us to nourish us, to strengthen us, to give us life. We eat because we look forward to the day when fasting will be no more. When sin and sorrow and tears will no longer be our food. As the psalmist says. When the marriage supper of the Lamb will be a spread before us of unlike any order and a wedding reception like no other will ensue and we will celebrate and rejoice And so today, fasting reminds us that we are dust to dust. But in that day, in glory, there will be no need to fast because we will be glorified. We will be raised up. And we will eat and feast with the Lamb who was slain. Friends, as we come to the table in just a moment, This meal is a meal of both fasting and feasting. And that is just a small token of the feast that we're going to have. And as my father pointed out, 
Christ isn't eating this feast with us. He's fasting in heaven as he awaits his coming to bring his bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we're often struggle to find joy. Help us to rejoice knowing that the bridegroom has come, that he's laid down his life for us, his bride, that he is that he has clothed us in his righteousness and that he's coming once again to bring us home to glory, that we might sit at the supper of the Lamb. Give us that hope, that longing, that joy, even as we continue to have sorrow and grief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.